Private prisons look a lot like government-run facilities. They have inmates and guards, tall walls and barbed wire, but they're not the same. The privatized prison industry is different in some really important ways. For one, the facilities are run by for-profit companies. They make money for a service they provide, and that service is inmate detention. They have a single customer, the U.S. government. Taxpayers like you and me indirectly pay these companies to help bear the burden of an overpopulated prison system. And in the era of mass incarceration, business is booming. There's an essential um, contradiction that is always at play, I think, with private prisons, where the company um, has an obligation to provide care and security to the people that it you know, is overseeing. And it also has an obligation to turn a profit. Uh, its stocks are traded on Wall Street. Um, and, you know, typically um, a part of that in any company is cutting costs. This industry is also insulated. Reporters can't use the Freedom of Information Act to pull data and records. Corporate operations are shrouded in secrecy. In today's special two-part episode, we'll talk to three investigative journalists who brought this private industry into the public light. Their stories mix corporate accountability with criminal justice and data with shoe leather. First up, the voice you just heard, Shane Bauer. Shane is a Mother Jones reporter who went undercover as a guard in a notoriously violent and poorly managed prison in rural Louisiana. Then, in part two of this episode, we'll hear from Eli Hager and Alicia Santo, two Marshall Project reporters who dove headfirst into the deadly world of for-profit extradition services. Two radically different investigative approaches that came to similar conclusions. The privatized prison industry is broken, it has been for a while, and nobody's watching. I'm Brett Murphy, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Bauer spent two years of his life in an Iranian prison. In July of 2009, Shane, his girlfriend, and a friend were arrested while hiking on the Iraqi border, charged with spying. They were eventually released in 2011, and Shane returned stateside with a new concern for American incarceration. He began writing stories for Mother Jones magazine about solitary confinement and inmate conditions in California, but he quickly learned what most criminal justice reporters know all too well. The U.S. prison system is cloaked in darkness, information as closely guarded as the inmates themselves. These prisons are, are even more secretive, and a lot of um, you know, public records laws don't even apply uh, to private prisons because they are not public institutions. They're, they're private companies. Um, so I really wanted to, to really get inside and, and see what life was like inside of them. Uh, they've they've been, existed for Three decades now. The private prison industry sprung up after America's war on crime hit city streets in the 70s and 80s. By the mid-90s, incarceration rates swelled five times over. State and federal prisons couldn't handle the influx, so they began outsourcing bed space to private prisons. Today, those prisons oversee about 131,000 of the nation's 1.6 million prisoners. Shane wanted to know how all of this plays out behind the barbed wire. He wanted to see what the prisoners see and fact-check the official record. So he took a radical step. He applied to become a prison guard. 
didn't take much really to convince my editors that this was um, a justifiable approach um, just because there was, you know, such limitations at getting access to prisons. Soon Shane was getting job offers all over the country. He landed on the Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, in Winfield, Louisiana. CCA is a $1.9 billion company with 60 prisons all over the U.S. The facility in Louisiana is called Win, and it's one of the worst managed in a state with the highest incarceration rate in the world. Two weeks later, Shane grew a goatee. He bought an old pickup truck and put on the guard uniform. Shane's approach raises some sticky ethical questions about undercover reporting. Journalists are typically wary about misrepresenting themselves, and rightfully so. A reporter's integrity is often all he or she has when asking a source to confide. There's a line that, that we're walking where, um, you know, basically the ground rule going in is that I don't lie, um, but I also, you know, don't need to constantly offer up, uh, you know, information about myself. I wasn't you know, whenever I met somebody in the prison, I wasn't saying, I'm a journalist, um, would you like to talk to me? Um, you know, that was a part of, of this approach. Um, and, you know, the reality is that I was a guard. I mean, I took the job, I did the job. The closest thing to an ethics guidebook for reporters comes from the Society of Professional Journalists. It says that newsrooms should not go undercover unless they can't get the information any other way and that what they find is, quote, vital to the public. A bit subjective, but basically it's a gamble that what you see or learn while inside will ultimately justify you being there under a false pretense. I asked Shane about that gamble, about what he observed versus what he was told later by the company. I sent them over 150 questions um, by the end, and, you know, it really brought home for me, you know, what, what this would have been if I had only been asking them questions. There were examples um, that really drove this home, like um, I recorded uh, stabbings while I was there. Um, there was a two-month period where I noted 12 stabbings. These were stabbings that either I witnessed myself or were reported to us in meetings by the warden or a supervisor. And I later did a lot of, um, you know, public records uh, requests with the Department of Corrections to get uh, numbers from them, including, you know, the, the number of reported stabbings. Um, the, the company is required to report to the Department of Corrections uh, any, any stabbing that, that happens. Um, so I, I recorded 12 over a two-month period, and they reported five over a 10-month period. Um, so had I been reporting on this uh, through traditional means, that would be the data that I would be working with. It kind of raises a lot of questions about what we actually might know about the whole private prison industry. It seems like right. uh, a lot of what we know has already gone through the prism of of corporate. Right. And, and again, I think this is why, you know, this approach is important. I mean, you know, if, if we are only willing to uh, speak to people who you know, are willing to talk to us and take what they tell us, um, we're giving a lot of control to uh, these powerful institutions, you know. Um, and I don't think that, you know, as journalists, we should be giving them the last word. Shane used some gadgetry, James Bond stuff, to report without getting made as a reporter. An audio recorder inside of his pen, 
a video camera on the face of his watch. He often retreated to bathroom stalls to scribble entire scenes into his guard's notebook. Every night when he got home to his small one-bedroom apartment, he filed video diaries of everything he saw, heard, and felt that day. Here are a few of Shane's entries. I'm pissed right now. Um, I just left the prison, and on my way out, I was stopped and told that I had to come in tomorrow. I told him I'm not coming. Quickly becoming desensitized to violence. The security is so bad. And it's just this cauldron, this kind of boiling pot that I'm stuck inside. I thought that there was going to be a riot in the unit that I work in. Like any business looking to turn a profit, Wynn cuts costs wherever it can. New guards make just $9 an hour. At the infamous Angola State Prison just up the road, guards make $12.50 an hour. Shane learned that Wynn is chronically understaffed as a result. There just weren't enough people willing to do that job, even in a town as impoverished as Winfield, Louisiana, um, to, to fill the posts that, that were required uh, by contract. One prisoner escaped right beneath an empty guard tower. It was hours before the prison even realized he was gone. The two other problems Shane saw were cuts to inmate programs, inadequate medical attention. I met a man who had lost his legs and fingers to gangrene after um, going for, for several months to the infirmary complaining of you know, intense pain in his legs, um, up to you know, pus coming out of his feet, uh, blackening. He wasn't sleeping uh, because he was in so much pain and he was trying to go to the doctor, but he would just kind of be given Motrin and sent back to his, his unit. Um, and I saw this kind of thing come up a lot and a lot of uh, prisoners were you know, trying to get me to somehow get them to see a, a doctor in a hospital. But, you know, the company, if, if they send somebody to the hospital, they have to pay medical expenses. Um, and this, you know, is, is a significant cost when you're making $34 a day for a prisoner um, to, to take someone to a hospital and pay their expenses, even in, for a couple of days, is significant. Um, so it would make sense that there might be some resistance to doing that from a business perspective. It's no surprise that tempers boiled over. At Wynn, inmates outnumbered the guards 50 to 1. Violence became routine. If a fight broke out, Shane was encouraged to yell from a distance instead of physically intervening. There were stabbings every week that I was there, um, sometimes multiple stabbings in a week. The prison responded to violence with violence. In 2015, while Shane was inside, Wynn reported twice as many, quote, immediate uses of force as the eight other Louisiana prisons combined. If a single prisoner acted out, Shane was told on his first day by a training officer, don't beat him up alone, wait for some backup. And whatever you do, don't do it in front of a camera. Went down this road for a long time and got to a, plate, a point of crisis. And the way that the company dealt with that crisis was to send in uh, their kind of tactical teams, uh, which are kind of SWAT-like teams um, from around the country, to try to bring the prison under control. And one of the, the main ways they did that was, like the assistant warden said, it was through using pain. Um, they used... Um, a really high amount of uh, 
chemical weapons, um, pepper spray and tear gas uh, during that time. Um, I think it was actually seven times more than uh, had been used at Angola prison. And the reality that Shane knew all too well was that at any given moment, the power dynamic could shift and not in his favor. There were 350 inmates in his unit alone and sometimes just one other guard on duty. It's always like very obvious that at any moment they could overpower us and take over the prison. I mean, I think the way that I related to it shifted over time. At first, when I would be driving to work, I would, you know, I was just really nervous, um, especially about getting, um, you know, the, the, the people at the prison kind of realizing that I was a reporter. Um, it took a while for me to feel comfortable and that I was really inside and that I didn't have to worry about that aspect. Um, you know, I didn't know how they would react. I was inside of a prison, it was a very hostile situation, um, and it seemed unpredictable. Shane's fears soon changed from those of an undercover journalist to those of a rookie guard. He couldn't look like a pushover, but he also didn't want to come down too hard on the inmates who could ambush him any day in the dark, isolated halls. It became harder and harder for Shane to separate himself from the job. You know, really feeling like it was affecting me uh, in ways that I didn't like psychologically and was concerned that if I stayed on for much longer that, you know, it could be serious. Um, You know, I had a kind of, I was worried that at some point, you know, some of these changes that I was seeing inside myself might stick. He remembers the first time he noticed himself becoming someone he didn't recognize. I was in the cafeteria and uh, was having to direct prisoners where to sit, um, which was, was a job that it really it didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand why they couldn't just sit where they wanted to sit. You know, what was the point of me telling them to go to this table or that table? And there was a lot of tension. You know, I was obviously a rookie, so everybody's testing me. And um, this one guy just wouldn't comply. And so I kind of got some backup and made this guy sit where I told him to sit. And there was a moment where I just totally forgot. That was the first time that I forgot about being a journalist. Shane became frustrated whenever he didn't feel in control. He started to like the power, to like putting people in their place. You know, I thought it's not you know, as if I didn't think that this job would affect me at all. I thought it probably would. Um, but I didn't realize um, how extreme that would be. And also, I didn't really realize or expect that um, the situation of guards would be an important part of the story and that, you know, that I would find that the line between the guards and the prisoners was a lot thinner than I realized. After almost four months, the double life had started to weigh heavily on Shane. The risk, the isolation, the violence. He looked for a reason to get out. But at the same time, I had just been um, pointed out for promotion and was was interested in, you know, pursuing that and seeing where that led and, you know, seeing if it opened up new doors. Um, so I was considering uh, staying longer. I, was, I, was, I wasn't sure. Um, you probably but... could have been warden in a couple, in a couple months. <laughs> yeah, that would have been interesting. <laughs> but then he learned that a Mother Jones videographer, James West, had been arrested on the road outside of Wynn while filming at night. Shane figured it wouldn't be long before word got around town that there was a reporter 
inside the prison. We found out he was in jail. My wife was, was there at the time, and we basically packed up everything from the apartment that had to do with CCA or my reporting and left in the middle of the night, checked into a hotel. James got out, and um, we just packed up the apartment and left and drove straight to Texas. Shane spent the next year reporting, fact-checking, and verifying everything he'd seen and heard at Wynn. Mother Jones worked closely with his lawyers after CCA learned about Shane's identity and threatened to sue for breach of contract. It was all completely new territory. Never before has a journalist gone undercover at a private prison. You know, it was it was a difficult experience for me, but it, you know, it's it's complicated. I mean, when I'm in there and struggling with these things and the ways I'm seeing myself change, I'm also aware the whole time that I'm just getting really good stuff and um, that I have a really good story on my hands, a story that I knew while I was there was going to be, you know, one of the things that when I'm on my deathbed, I'll look back on and will be one of the best stories I probably ever did, um, or more important. The 35,000-word story took up an entire print issue of Mother Jones, and it's been lauded by fellow reporters and media critics. You can also listen to the audio version of the story on Reveal, a podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting. I asked a friend of mine who covers prisons in another state how he felt about Shane's method. He said it's nothing he could ever see himself doing, and he's really glad his editor has never asked him to, but there's definitely a case to be made for undercover reporting in the hidden world of private prisons. Shane agrees the approach isn't for everyone, and it shouldn't be, but this was a rare opportunity to parachute into the no-fly zone, then literally run off in the middle of the night. I think there's this kind of divide between, uh, and these are kind of loose terms, but access journalism and accountability journalism, and both are important. Um, You know, it's important for us to have people that can go back to these places day in and day out, Um, but there's serious limitations to that approach. Um, You know, you have to play ball to some degree. Uh, If you, especially with, with corrections, I mean, if you piss off the people that are letting you into the prisons, they're not going to let you in anymore, and that happens. It's tricky. I mean, it's, I think it's there's strength to, to this approach, which is that, you know, you're completely immersed and you're able to bring to life a situation that you really can't in any other way because um, people are not acting for you. I mean, I think on some level when you're interviewing somebody as a journalist or spending time with them, they're performing, and in this situation, they're not. Um, but at the same time, you get so immersed in it that, um, you know, it's, it's hard not to, you, you become a part of the thing that you're writing about, and you can't deny that. Coming up, hear from two reporters who took a more by-the-book approach to investigating private prison industry. Like in Denise Isaac's case, she was drooling, moaning, gasping. Um, The guards at one point pulled over to call PTS headquarters and ask, you know, can't we please take this person to a hospital? And they say they were told by PTS headquarters, no, you've got to keep driving, you've got to keep driving. And and Denise Isaacs 
was found dead in a Taco Bell parking lot just a few hours later. That's Eli Hager, a reporter for the Marshall Project. This summer, Eli teamed up with Alicia Santo for a countrywide look into one small piece of the privatized prison complex. It's called interstate extradition, or prisoner transport, and it's become deadly. Here's how it works. Say you get pulled over in New Mexico. You offer up your driver's license. The officer checks it and sees in the computer that you're wanted in Georgia for unpaid alimony or skip jury duty or violating probation like Denise Isaacs was. You might not even know you'd committed a crime a lifetime ago in some other state. So you're taken to jail where you sit for weeks. Then you get picked up by a van with the letters PTS on the side. That stands for Prisoners Transportation Services, the biggest extradition company in the country. Police and corrections departments all over the U.S. have outstanding arrest warrants. And departments in 26 different states contract with private companies like PTS to serve out those warrants. Hands and feet shackled, you squeeze into the back of the van with as many as 11 other people at once. There's no rhyme or reason to how they're placed in the van uh, based on their charges. So you can have people who are, you know, have unpaid child support, people who haven't been convicted yet but are accused of uh, like a DUI or a probation violation, um, sitting next to people who have been convicted of violent crimes like rape and murder, um, all in the same area uh, of the same van in a cramped space for days in a row um, uh, with no way to, to lie down to sleep, and, and it becomes this volatile situation. Over the next week, or sometimes longer, you'll drive, maybe with no seatbelts and crappy air conditioning, all over the cell, dropping off and picking up people as you go. So we heard both from guards and from prisoners that urinating in bottles and, and things like that was very common in the backs of the vans because it, they, they're just really not stopping for days on end. You might get to sleep in some jails along the way and eat fast food, maybe even take a shower at some point. But there are no rules saying how many times your driver gets to stop and for what reason. Some people in your van might try to escape and pray you don't have a medical emergency. Alicia met with one man, a diabetic, who went almost two weeks without his medication. He got black sores on his feet and legs while waiting in a South Carolina jail. They became so bad in the van on his way north that he had to get both legs amputated. Yeah, that one was like really upsetting because I went down there and met with him in person and, and talked to him about it. Some passengers fare even worse. Since 2012, four prisoners have died while in the back of a company transport van. Beyond that, we found that there had been a dozen deaths that had occurred um, as a result of crashes, and that included guards and prisoners that were on the van. And since 2000, 60 people have escaped while in transit. Alicia and Eli found that government agencies, from the Federal Department of Correction all the way down to a local sheriff, have just a fraction of those escapes and deaths when they transport their own prisoners. Strict regulations and procedures help prevent accidents. Medications are administered and emergencies are addressed. But when you're transporting prisoners for cash, crazy things happen. Private extradition services like PTS are paid on a per-prisoner, per-mile basis. That gives them a pretty good incentive just to zigzag all over the place, deviating from what should be a straightforward route. They try to pick up and drop off as many people as they can. Recalculating. Say somebody has been in the van four days and the guards themselves have been wanting to kind of drop this person off, you know, for humanity's sake. An order might come in, and we were told this by multiple people, and they get derailed and have to go and pick up another person way out of the way, uh, elongating the trip further for everybody involved. Alicia and Eli spent months tracking court cases and Department of Corrections invoices to find instances of neglect. They discovered a pattern of companies like PTS sacrificing the health and safety of its prisoners and drivers for the sake of the bottom line. 
people are routed and rerouted around like packages. Um, and we had multiple guards tell us that, you know, that they would kind of sometimes fight back against this, like, and say, you know, I, I can't, do, we can't do this, you know, and basically they were told to just keep going to like follow the orders that they were being told. Um, and another sort of con thing that is uh, a pressurizer on the industry is that there are, in some cases, people that need to be dropped off in a particular time frame. Like, if, if they don't make it at that time, they actually uh, no longer, you know, they, they don't actually get paid anymore because they missed the deadline. And we found that this also can lead to unsafe driving conditions because all of a sudden, like, a guard is being told, you need to get to this place by in this amount of time, do it. And so this, you know, those things all come out, you know, all together. Um, they just create a situation where safety did not appear to be uh, a priority. In order to chronicle all of these cases, Alicia and Eli built their own state and federal databases by scouring Pacer and Westlaw for lawsuits and local news reports all over the country. They searched for anything to do with prisoner transport, crashes, escapes, and wrongful deaths. From there, they zeroed in on a handful of companies. But PTS became the center of their investigation. It transports almost 20,000 people every year, four times as many as the next busiest company. Once we did have this database of all these incidents and crashes and escapes, we kind of categorized the crashes and escapes. So with the crashes, we would... Um, make records requests for the accident reports in, in as many of the crashes as we could um, so that we could see what time they happened and maybe build a case that a lot of these were happening in the middle of the night and part of the problem was lack of sleep and that type of thing. And also trying to figure out from the accident reports whether the uh, prisoners were seat belted because that was another kind of point that we were thinking about. Um, and then with the escapes, what we did is for as many of them as we could, we called the local sheriffs who had had to you know, hunt down the person who escaped from the van. And we asked them questions like, was the escape caused by some sort of negligence by the, by the van company? Uh, were you ever reimbursed by the company uh, for, for your manhunt, uh, which is required by law in cases of negligence, but uh, from what we found, almost never occurs. The two reporters figured the drivers probably didn't like the system any more than the prisoners did. But they wanted to avoid a company-wide gag order from up top, so, without going through public relations channels, Eli and Alicia found dozens of current and former drivers on LinkedIn and Facebook. They were upfront and honest about their pitch. We know this has been a problem. We want to hear from you. What's it like out there? How do you feel about the prisoner's treatment, your own treatment as employees? One of the harder things to do often is to get corrections officers or others in law enforcement to, to speak with you candidly about their experience or, or, you know, just about what's happened to them. And in this case, it actually, we found a lot of people were quite eager to speak with us. Um, they had stories they really wanted to tell, and and they were um, they were angry about what had happened. Uh, and they, you know, they had some, uh, they just felt like the way that this company was treating people was wrong. And a lot of them didn't necessarily like the job very much. They, a lot of them told us they found the conditions in the back inhumane, and that was hard to put up with after a while. Um, they felt a lot of pressure from their superiors to keep driving, and they were afraid of falling asleep at the wheel. Uh, they didn't get paid very well. They didn't get a lot of money to buy the inmates' food, and they ended up paying for stuff out of pocket, uh, kind of out of sympathy. The human beings driving these vans uh, 
uh, were, were put in a, a hard place by by the business model and by the fact that there was so much pressure to keep driving and so little training preparing them for having a van full of sometimes dangerous uh, people. Alicia and Eli found that in most of these cases, the deaths, the escapes, the crashes, nobody was being held responsible. Not the states, not the counties, not the company. They put in a large FOIA request with the Department of Transportation to see what, if any, enforcement measures were being taken. It's tough because if you order the extradition and the company is negligent and the person dies in a whole other state, do you know what I mean? It creates this really weird triangular like situation, um, which I think explains a lot about why it's it's been so difficult in some of these cases uh, to to pin the blame, I guess, on someone. The first death they looked into was that of Stephen Gallick, and his story turned out to be a sort of case study in how these people can fall through the cracks. In 2012, Gallick was wanted in Ohio for unpaid child support. A transportation company picked him up from a jail in Florida and began a trip north with 11 others. It was scorching hot outside. He had had anxiety problems in the past, uh, he got on, and after a day or two in the van, he started acting very strange. Uh, he was panicky. He became delusional. He was saying things that didn't make any sense. Gallic started ranting at all hours. Nobody else in the van could sleep or even relax. And at one point, the guards uh, pulled over the van, according to two of the other prisoners, uh, put Stephen Gallic in the middle with the other prisoners, and they started stomping and beating on him. And uh, he was found dead uh, 70 miles later uh, after the van had crossed into Tennessee. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation came in to investigate, uh, but they decided fairly quickly within a few hours that the, if there was a crime, it had happened in Georgia. So they called the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and they said, it's your case. Uh, but the, they never really followed up and the van the very next day continued on its journey uh, north toward Ohio. So who ended up um, taking responsibility for what happened with Stephen? Um, not much of anyone, uh, in part because he had crossed state lines uh, while on the van, and also in part because the autopsy report eventually came back undetermined as the cause of death. Um, and so the investigating agencies uh, concluded that if the cause of death was undetermined, uh, that they couldn't really pursue a homicide case. Reporters often run into this kind of thing. People treated like garbage because nobody's watching. Usually they're the types of people we don't like to think about. Prisoners, criminals, the poor. But an effective story makes us reckon with them and their plight. I think it's kind of hard to not have feelings about what you're hearing. You know, um, with any investigation, you kind of start on a premise that, that something is wrong here. Eli and Alicia want others to pick up where they left off. There are thousands of counties and jurisdictions that could have problems with private prisoner transport. We have a link in the episode notes to the Marshall Project's full methodology and tip sheet on how to localize their story. I really think that this is one of the best ways that the the reporting we've done can um, perhaps lead to better conditions for people, is that if other reporters um, shine a light on it themselves. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all of the latest episodes. And head on over to ire.org slash podcast to browse our archives. We'll have links to all the stories and resources we mentioned today in our episode notes. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. 
Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Brett Murphy. Podcast. Podcast.